0: Bitcoin accumulation country. It's that time of the week. I'm your host, Coin Icarus. This is the fun with Bitcoin podcast sponsored by Crypto Cloaks 3D printing. Check them out for all your 3D printing needs and also sponsored by Coinbeast. Book a one-on-one video call with a Bitcoin pro and take your Bitcoin knowledge game to the next level. I personally, um, I, I think that this is the type of thing that is helpful for people who are maybe not so confident. Um, you know, maybe they, they just want to get a second opinion, maybe some validation. This may help. Anyways, check them out, coinbeast.com. Even if you don't book any time with an expert, check them out for the resources. They've got some great resources. Anyways, now on to the fun. So. I sat down with fellow Bitcoiner and Pleb, Patrick the Motorist, and this was a really cool conversation. Anyways, without further ado, here is my chat with Patrick the Motorist. Welcome to the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I'm your host, Coin Icarus, and joining me today is fellow Bitcoin Pleb, uh, Bitcoin Motorist, or Patrick the Motorist. <laughs> um, Bitcoin motorist, man, I, I met you, I, I believe on uh, clubhouse and we had some interesting chats together and mm. man, I'm really glad that uh, you took the time to uh, join me on my podcast, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, so, so honored that you asked me to be here, Phil. I'm really, really happy to be here. Also, I'm a, a big fan of uh, simply Bitcoin. And so I love you guys as format you and Nico. Uh, in fact, Nico was the one who, uh, who gave me the uh, invite to come to, uh, uh, to come to clubhouse. So, uh, forever indebted to him <laughs> oh
0: cool man that's awesome yeah. I, I i wasn't aware of that sweet well look i'm glad yeah. i'm glad you love the show we love doing it too um so you know what before we uh you know uh, i always like to start this off this is the first time you've been on my podcast so I, I if you uh if you may uh we'd like to hear the uh the rabbit hole story but uh if you can also share like where were you before bitcoin
1: Sure thing. So before Bitcoin, um, I uh, I was in, uh, in sales and insurance, and uh, I worked in mortgage, did mortgage sales, did insurance sales. Uh, I, I did cell phone sales, did all sorts of sales. So I was kind of a salesman by trade before. Although um, at the time, um, I was actually working at a casino uh, in, in the Southern California area where I'm from. Um, so, um, you know, I'm from the LA area and I was actually working in a casino at the time. And I kind of justified it in my mind by saying, um, you know, a, a casino and insurance is basically the same thing. You're basically placing a bet, but it, when you, when you place a bet in insurance, you're actually placing a bet against yourself. So it's, it's basically the same thing. It's all, it's all gambling. Uh, so, so I was actually working at a casino and I was, you know, I was a supervisor at a casino in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in Southern California, uh, at the time before I got into Bitcoin.
0: That is very cool. Sorry, I'm just writing that down because I never thought of insurance as gambling, but you're absolutely right. It's just, it's very, uh, it's like very educated speculation, right?
1: That's right. And, um, and, and that's all it, it's really all it is. It's um, it, the way, the way insurance companies uh, try to figure out their actuarial tables, it is all done by probability. So in order to work for an insurance company on the actuarial side, you have to really know statistics and probability in order to build casino games. You have to also know statistics and probability very, very well. So it's, it's kind of the same skill set. although I wasn't really involved in any of that <laughs> behind the scenes stuff. I was more, you know, on, on the, on the, um, uh, on the front end side of it. <laughs>
0: That's pretty uh, that's pretty cool, though. I I have some experience with casinos, but it's a little bit more on the um, back end security side. And I I can tell you that they are very uh, those are those are interesting businesses, Um, very I I find like like a well-oiled machine, you know. Another thing that I should
1: probably tell you before I got into Bitcoin is I was very much a political junkie. I was very much into politics, even even uh, before uh, before I graduated high school. Like I remember when I was in high school, I was watching CNN's Inside Politics all the time. It was one of my favorite shows, and I was listening to Rush Limbaugh just to kind of get the lowdown on what was happening in, um, in you know in in the American politics at the time. And I would say that uh, I got into Bitcoin in, in the beginning of 2013. So this is right off of the uh, the 2012. Uh, election. So like for all of 2012, I was just focused on politics and election. And I was thinking, this is how you fix things. You do it through the political system. And, uh, and I guess kind of, I just kind of realized uh, after the 2012 election, uh, I just realized maybe this isn't the best way to fix things. Like this is kind of, you know, I mean, you had two bad choices, you know, Romney and Obama, I think. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that, that uh, I was a little bit frustrated after the election because. I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something to do to improve society. Because I always uh, looked at the, the way the government was run. And I was like, you know, it's it's kind of in debt all the time. It's kind of spending more money. It's taxing more than it probably should. It should probably live within its means. And uh, I didn't really have a good answer. So I was kind of, I had a little bit of despair and frustration. So I'm glad I kind of discovered Bitcoin at exactly the right time.
0: That's pretty, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I have to admit, um, Uh, you know, I, I was also a a big fan of following, I mean, I'm originally from Montreal, so I would follow, you know, boring Canadian politics. Um, but yeah, you know, like I was always very passionate about it and I'm like, you know, these, you know, these, these multiple parties, like they just don't get it. Like at the end of the day, they just don't, they're not really serving the people, you know? And, and it's very, uh, it's, it's kind of disheartening, you know? And, and you're right, you know, you're always looking for what's wrong. And, And I remember figuring out, you know, that the problem was, was the money and, And then i remember feeling stuck but it's not about me anyways let's uh let's move on here um so look it's it's 2012 you realize that the you know petitioning and lobbying isn't gonna fix isn't gonna fix anything how does how does patrick find bitcoin
1: well i was um i I i figured uh I don't know if I was ex- exactly happy with working at the casino, although I was doing well. I was being promoted and I was looked at as one of the, you know, the better employees. And uh, I, I, I still was like, I got to find something. So I was looking around to try to find out what the next big technological breakthrough was going to be that I could kind of get into. Cause uh, cause I had seen uh, the movie pirates of Of Silicon Valley, uh, I think uh, maybe that year or the year before in 2012, which is kind of about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and how they were kind of there at exactly the right time. And I had read this book uh, by um, Malcolm Gladwell called uh, Outliers, which kind of uh, said, pointed out how both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were both born in 1955. And it wasn't an accident that these guys kind of were in there at the right time. So I was trying to look around. I'm like, what's the next thing? What's this big thing that's going to be here? And I came up with a brilliant solution. I was like, I know what it is. I know what the next big technological breakthrough is. It's quantum computers. That's what it is. That's what I'm going to get into, and <laughs> and I, I I went online and I try to f- I found these people who were very very much into quantum computing, and I tried to like learn how to program on these things and try to kind of figure out how they work and kind of learn the computer science aspect of it, like on the logic, um, um, the the Boolean logic level of it, which uh, uh, which I'm not really a computer guy. I'm not I'm not a tech guy. So I was kind of learning this stuff from scratch. It was kind of weird, and then. Um, And then because I was online and always looking at these computer, you know, videos and quantum computing videos, I think YouTube recommended a Bitcoin video to me. And that's kind of what kind of got me started (laughs) is I watched this YouTube video that was that was about Bitcoin. And uh, I don't know exactly when I saw it. I'm I'm guessing it was sometime in March of of, of 2013. Uh, But the funny thing is, is that soon after I watched that video, I watched that video and I kind of thought I learned about Bitcoin for the first time. I found out later that i actually been told about Bitcoin previously, but I, I thought I'd learned about Bitcoin for the first time then. And then right after I saw that video, it may have been a day after, a week after, but I don't know exactly when, but I got into a motorcycle crash. Uh, I was coming home from work from the casino. I'd worked an all night shift and I was coming home in, in the morning, going through LA, you know, LA traffic on my motorcycle. And I got into a motorcycle accident, which gave me temporary short-term amnesia. And this was a pretty serious accident. I had to go to a trauma center. And I was there in the hospital for about a week. I had a total of four surgeries while I was in the hospital. And I had two more surgeries later after I got out of the hospital. So, And I was out of work for five months. And I remember being in the hospital and actually waking up on the pavement. Um, This is kind of weird, but I was... I would say I was a Christian before the accident. But as I woke up on the pavement, I had a cross around my neck and the medics took that cross off of me. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm never wearing that cross again. Because I kind of felt like I lost my religion in that moment of of the concussion. And then when I went into the hospital, I remember thinking to myself, you know, okay, so I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not a maybe I'm not a Republican either, you know, like a conservative, like a political conservative. So I was kind of questioning myself. And then, and then I, I, had to let, I had to let work know that I, that I was in an accident. I couldn't come to work. And my phone was actually on my belt when I, when I got into the crash. So my phone was completely smashed. So I couldn't use my phone to call. And I couldn't really access my contacts. So I told my family, hey, bring me my, uh, my iPad so I can, you know, email work and let them know I'm, I was in an accident today and I won't be able to come in. So as I was in the hospital bed, um, you know, e- sending, sending uh, an email to my boss, letting him know that I was in an accident um, I was like, I gotta watch that YouTube video again. I gotta find that YouTube video, the one about the the Bitcoin. I was also, I was extremely interested. I had seen the video before, and I was like, yeah, it sounds kind of, sounds kind of sketch. But then, like, for some reason, after the accident, I was very, very much intent on finding more about this Bitcoin thing. And I don't know what it was. Yeah, I wish I could say that I came to Bitcoin and liberty and libertarianism through having this logical thinking and, and you know trying to figuring this out, you know, through a, through a logical uh, process of elimination, but. I really can't say that. I think it was more of just, (laughs) you know, something got crossed in my brain, some wires got crossed in my brain. And that's kind of how I got into it. So the the interesting thing is that I couldn't find that video. I could not find that video again. And the reason why I couldn't find the video is because I was misremembering it. Remember I had just gone through a concussion. Mm -hmm. So the way that I remembered the video was not how it really was. I remembered that it was somebody like, uh, I think, is it Hank Green or, um, one, one, of the, one of the vlog brothers, I think his name is Hank Green. I thought it was Hank Green talking about Bitcoin for some reason. That's how I remembered the video in my mind. And I, and I discovered the video. I found it again like six months later, six months after the accident. And I was like, oh, this is why I couldn't find it. I had the host wrong. Like in my mind, it was a different host. So uh, so, so, and, and a lot of times I question myself to say, why was I open to this? Why was I kind of open to it? And I was more of a sound money guy. Uh, I was never really a gold bug. I didn't really think gold was a good investment, but I did understand the importance of sound money and I did understand the importance of being on a gold standard. I never looked at gold as a good investment, but I thought that the, the, the way that you can control uh, you know, government overreach is by limiting their power through uh, uh, you know, restricting them to a gold standard so that they can't just do whatever they want with no consequences so I think one of the reasons why I was kind of open to this idea of Bitcoin, even when I first saw that video before the crash, was because of the sound money aspect of it. So, and I asked myself this question recently, like maybe in the past year. Or so I'm like, why was I open to sound money? Like who told me that sound money and a gold standard was a good thing? Because I don't think I got it from Rush Limbaugh, and I don't think I got it from mainstream conservative politics. Uh, so I was I was trying to remember, and then I remembered that that somebody like in the late nineties or early two thousands had recommended an essay written by Alan Greenspan of all people. I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Greenspan, Absolutely, he's a big, yeah, he's, he's a big fed head. And, uh, and, he's a, and he's a piece of crap. He, he is, he is he's, a he's piece one of crap. The,
0: he's one of the main, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was his stupid, uh, it, it was his stupid idea to get everybody to borrow against their houses. That, that yeah was... he did he actually and i and he was actually
1: <laughs> my best friend when i was a mortgage broker when really? i was in mortgage sales i was actually telling people look alan greenspan is recommending you refinance your house and oh pull course. out the equity yeah which is i was using that actually but this is uh but this Sorry. is um no but the funny thing about it is that he was actually a good guy back in the 60s he yep. was very much into ayn rand yep. and he was very much into um sound money and going to gold standard not, not so much in the 90s but someone said you need to go read this old essay that's written by Alan Greenspan in the 1960s. And it talks about how important a gold standard is. And you can find this essay to this day online. It's actually not that hard to find. And it's not a very long essay. I think it's like two or three pages long. But basically the gist of the essay is that it, it a gold standard is, is a way to control government overreach, to control government becoming too powerful. Mm-hmm. So, um, and... I think that that may have been part of it. That may have been one of the reasons why I was open to Bitcoin when I first heard about it, because I kind of saw it as a solution uh, to this to this problem of of kind of uh, government being too powerful. So, and and one of the benefits, one of the things is is today, if I talk to somebody about Bitcoin, um, a lot of times people don't have time. They have work. They have you know school. They have kids. They have families. They have a lot of responsibilities. So so people don't really have the time to do a deep dive and do a lot of research. Now, what was I doing? I was recovering from an accident. So I was out of work for like months as, as my body was recovering from this crash. So I had time on my hands. So I discovered this thing, Bitcoin, and, uh, you know, I had to do some paperwork at the hospital and whatever. But once I got that paperwork out of the way, I was like, I need to go research this Bitcoin. So I went on Bitcoin talk forum. I tried to look for more YouTube videos about Bitcoin. I found a bunch of videos by this guy named Amir Taki and, uh, and I found some videos by Jeffrey Tucker. And then that kind of got me down the rabbit hole towards liberty. And I found a whole bunch of like, you know, libertarian and liberty-oriented uh, uh, YouTube videos, You know, stuff like Stefan Molyneux. Back in the day, Stefan Molyneux was actually a libertarian and anarchist. Uh, not so much anymore, but back then he was. So I started researching this stuff. So I'm one of the people that kind of got into liberty and libertarianism. Um, through Bitcoin, not the other way around. So a lot of times people kind of are like, yeah, I got into Bitcoin because I was into Ron Paul. And that's kind of how I got into that. And that, for me, it was the opposite. Kind of got me down this rabbit hole. And I kind of, I had this, I felt like there's this huge weight lift off of me because before I was like, you know, we got to fix the government. And now I was like, why, why bother? The government can't be fixed. It's, you know it's a big scam, you know. It's kind of like my, my, the same thing that I had with, with you know with religion. It's like I don't have to worry about all this extra dogma stuff that I was worried about before. It's all about you know non-aggression principle and just doing the right thing, and you don't have to worry about you know this certain rituals or, or whatever you do uh, uh, to try to get into heaven or whatever. So
0: I like that. I like that. Um, okay, I want to go back and touch on some things. So first, I'm going to go way back to Pirates of Silicon Valley. That movie, uh, I, I, gotta say, um, when I saw that movie as a, I, I don't even remember how old I was anymore, but essentially the year that it came out, the one scene that stuck out to me the most, okay. Was the one with, um, Steve Jobs standing there and Bill Gates's head right behind him. Giant, like on a giant screen. Right. <laughs> and, and, yeah. um, and, and at one point, um, What's it called? At one point, you know, Steve Jobs gets upset and he tells Bill, he goes, you don't, you, you know, we're better than you. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and Bill Gates just looks at him and he goes, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And at that, yeah, that, and, that doesn't matter. And at that moment, right? Like at that moment, I, I think like people didn't really understand, or at least I interpreted it as the network effect, because it makes no different that you're better. It makes no different that your platform is better. No one gives a shit. It's the network. They were out first. They had the biggest reach. It, it was huge. Like I'm sorry, but back then I remember, like in schools, we weren't using Macintoshes. We were all using IBM's with you know Windows on them, and that's who ended up you know that that's who ended up winning in the beginning, right? But later right. on, but later on, Steve Jobs understood the uh, the network effect. So I, I thought that that was right. pretty yeah. cool
1: and one of the one i think one of the reasons why uh, you know after the movie came out one of the reasons why apple did so well afterwards was because they they knew that they had to work with windows so when the itunes itunes was it was a really really revolutionary program when it first came out now not so much now itunes sucks but back then it was really revolutionary it was really awesome and one of the reasons why iTunes was successful is because you could run it on any computer. It didn't have to be on an Apple, on an Apple device. And I think uh, they kind of understood the, uh, the network effect, uh, Steve Jobs did anyway, and kind of uh, used that to kind of build Apple and to make it what it is today. Now with yeah. a, you know, resurgence.
0: I, I agree. Like it definitely, uh, the network effect, um, the user experience and um, the closed ecosystem. Like, it's 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 really really anyways that you know the- so 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 the point of the reason why the
1: fires of Silicon Valley was important to me is because I realized you have to be somewhere you have to see something all those nerds that were in the movie in the 19 you know, late 1970s early 19s, they were going to all these computer conventions that you know nobody cared about except you know this this one this one group of weird computer hobbyists who you know now everyone is into computers but back then it was only a very few people that that even were into computers most people didn't even think you needed a computer uh, you know most of the time in the 80s when you were Talking about buying a computer, the question was, why do I need one? And nowadays, it's like, of course, you need a computer. But back then, so to me, it was more like, it it was more like, you know, you must, it's like you have to see something that other people don't. And when I discovered Bitcoin, I'm like, oh, okay, it doesn't matter to me that 98% of the population doesn't understand what this is. The fact is, I'm here, I get it. And the fact that the people who were early in the internet did so well for themselves and the people who were early into PCs did so well for themselves, to me, that was that's what matters. Uh, so one of the things that I think is very, very interesting is when I tell people about Bitcoin, um, they're like, well, you know what, I talked to this really, really smart mentor person that I really, really respect. And he said, you know, there's nothing to it. So... And, and I'm like, yeah, but that, that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, these really smart people, these, these, these you know, mentors and gurus, you know, they, they missed the computer revolution. They missed the PC revolution. They missed the internet revolution. They were saying the internet was, was like a fax machine. So to me, that doesn't matter that there's some smart people that are that don't get it. The fact that there's smart people that don't get it should be one of the reasons why you should be interested into it. And I think it's kind of hard to kind of convey that mindset. Uh, you know, this, this mindset of, of yes, um, you know, 90% of the people don't like something, but they're 90% of the people are wrong about most things. So, or they just go along with, uh, uh with what everyone else is doing.
0: So in, in terms of, cause you got me thinking about this, right. With like, you know, n- people thinking that, you know, no serious business was ever going to be done on computers. The Xerox board of directors was absolutely certain uh, of that. Um, but you know, you, you, got me thinking of this. So at which point right now, cause I always try to equate, cause I, I see, right. You know, uh, Bitcoin, uh, the internet of money. And whatnot. And I obviously, we compare it to all these disruptive technologies. So I try to compare it to the growth of the internet, right? And I still, in my mind, we are at like the internet in like 1990, you know, like maybe we're between 1985 and 1990. Like it's still like, yes, it's getting adopted by the mainstream, you know, corporations, right? We see people like Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, you know, adding to their funds, you know, Tesla, all that, you know, all the good news, you know, but like, it's like, it hasn't fully penetrated yet. So I still see it as like, we're, we're still early. Where do you, you know, my question to you is, if you were to compare it to the internet, where do you see us in the adoption phase of Bitcoin right now?
1: Well, I remember back in 2013, and 2014, people were saying this is like 1997 of the internet. But I don't think that was right. Because I think the reason why they were thinking it was 97 was they were looking at the, the VC investments and comparing the, the the nominal amount of VC investments that were happening in, in the companies in 97, 98, and, and comparing it to, to what was happening in Bitcoin back in 2013, 2014, people were like investing in companies like Coinbase and, and whatnot, and, you know, blockchain.info and, and whoever, whoever else. Um, so uh, I think that we're really, really early. I still think that we're really early. First of all, uh, most companies don't think that they need... Yeah, to have a Bitcoin strategy at this point, point. Um, and um, it seems like most uh, politicians think that they can, you know, uh, get by without having uh, a Bitcoin policy or or or, or a strong opinion on, on Bitcoin or be the promoters of Bitcoin. We are super super early. I mean, we're talking '80s stuff. I mean, I remember, um, you know, when I was in when I was in high school in the in the, in the early '90s, uh, you know, we were talking about the internet back then and. Uh, I had this one guy who was like a computer nerd in my class, and I was trying to ask him how to get on the internet. And they were talking about bulletin boards. I mean, you had to use a dial-up uh, modem. It wasn't even a World Wide Web. It was like you had to dial into a, uh, oh yeah, uh, to, to like to like it wasn't even a website. I can't even call it a website, but it was a bulletin board. And I think only one person at a time could be even on these things, which is kind of weird. If I'm, uh, you know, that, that's that's what you know. we I think I think we're not even in that phase yet. Um, it, but I think that we can go quickly from being like in 1985 when it comes to the internet to, uh, to being, uh, you know, I mean, 1993, the web was barely a thing. By 1997, everyone had to have, you know, at least dial up. And by the early 2000s, you had to have broadband. So it moved pretty, pretty quickly once once people got it. And you went from in the 1990s, online banking being like, oh, there's no way I would, I would put my banking information on on a website. Are you kidding me? It's going to get hacked. To now everybody almost everybody has online banking. There's a few holdouts out there, but for the most part 90% of the people are, are fine with checking their balance online. And if they can't check their balance online, if they have to actually take out the passbook and do the <laughs> do the calculations by hand, which is kind of how how you used to have to do it. Uh, you know, they, they would be lost. So it can it can flip pretty quickly from Bitcoin is stupid, Bitcoin is a fad to, yeah, of course, everyone likes Bitcoin. We always knew Bitcoin was good. You know, everyone kind of realized that no one looks back now uh, at, 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 you know, how the, the attitudes were towards, you know, personal computers in the 80s and thinks that, oh, yeah, like uh, computers, you know, you don't need a computer. What's the purpose of it? I mean, there was a famous, uh, I don't know if it was famous, but there was an episode of Married with Children, if you ever saw that sitcom, where they actually bought a computer in one of the episodes. And the whole joke was they couldn't figure out what it was for, and they were trying to figure out what to use the computer for. And that's kind of how it is with Bitcoin. People don't know what it's for yet, but they're going to get it really quickly. And eventually, eventually, the computer went from being, we don't know if we want it or not, to, it's essential, you have to have it that's what's going to happen with Bitcoin is we don't know what the purpose is. We don't know if we need it. We don't know if we want it to. Yeah, of course everyone has to have it. It's obvious. And it's going to be obvious very, very soon to
0: everybody. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I, and I think that because we already have this, you know, the base layer of uh, you know, the technology, right. We have the TCP IP stack, you know, the internet is built on top of it. Like I I think Mm. that that's why we're seeing Bitcoin growing as quickly as it is because, um, we could see that the internet, right? It's like all of this stuff didn't exist yet. It had to start existing, but Bitcoin already has this bit, the, the base layer of this technology that enables it, you know, like all these protocols, all these languages that you can build things on. So it's, it's really like, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty cool. And I actually want to go back to something that you said. Okay. So look, so like when I first started learning about computers, I, I'm Gen X. Okay. So for us, Online banking is totally the norm. We grew up with, as soon as they told us we could bank online, like, fuck this shit. Yeah. You know, like, and it is. Like, I, I just, if I don't have to go to a branch, I will not. Um, but besides that, I remember sitting in a computer class, okay, in like grade seven or eight. And we're, we're sitting there, and they're talking to us about um, using Netscape Navigator. And they're talking to mm. us about Gopher and they're talking to us about ftp okay and and mm, like all the yes i remember those and, and you're yeah. like you're like sitting there and you're just like there was another one called usenet i don't know if you yes, ever yes usenet, usenet yeah. like mm. it's like you are sitting there and you're like oh, i just want to play with this thing like mm. i don't want to know all this crap and like mm. that's that's the thing though if you didn't understand a lot of this base layer crap you couldn't do any of the fun things whereas now mm-hmm. we're on the internet You know, where people are using their computers, they barely need to understand any of this base layer shit, and it all just works, and they're happy.
1: There was a lot of work that had to be done on the back end that you and I are not aware of in order to make that happen. Like, I know (laughs) that one of the things was that you couldn't, like, trying to watch a video uh, on the internet, like, in 1999 was just such a, such a, a challenging thing. And, and now it just works. And the reason why it works is because there's a lot of stuff on the back end that was kind of fixed, most of it without us even realizing, um, you know, stuff like, you know, if, 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 the, if, the, if, the, um, if the bandwidth got, you know, uh, got too small, the video would stop. Whereas now the video keeps going and it kind of does other adjustments to make sure the video keeps going and it doesn't stop. So, uh, and I think that that's going to happen, uh, you know, obviously with Bitcoin too, there's going to be a lot of stuff on the back end. I mean, we're kind of aware of it because we're like, in, you know, we're, we're, we're in the teeth and we're in the uh, you know, we know about tap room. I, I may not be able to explain Taproot, you know, competently, but I know that it's going on. I know that it's important. It's going to make multi sig a little bit more easier. So it's going to make maybe institutional custody a little bit easier. So I kind of, um, I'm kind of aware of a lot of the stuff that is going on. Obviously, um, you know, I was around for the, uh, 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 for the for the Bitcoin Civil War, for the you know, for the fork wars and stuff like that. So I think that a lot of the stuff is is being figured out, and uh, and the solutions are here and solutions are coming, and it's going a lot of the stuff is gonna be a lot easier for a lot of
0: people to use. You know, speaking of which, right, uh, lightning right now, th- th- that's a great example of, of, of the mm. scaling and, and kind of that, you know, that debate between the technologies. Right. Um, I still remember watching TV as a kid and them telling us that I wasn't even that young anymore. You know, I was already like, you know, late teen. And they're telling us, you're never going to be able to watch a movie on the Internet. Like you were just saying, we're never going to stream video. You're always going to have a video store. Let's talk about Blockbuster, right? No, you don't need a video store anymore. So it, it, that's exactly right. All these enabling technologies, and like Lightning is one of those enabling technologies. Um, some of the things that we're seeing with Lightning is, um, uh, what's it called? I know that uh, this, this guy, um, uh, I think uh, he goes by the handle Amp or Amperture. Okay, he's, he's, he's uh, creating a back end to, uh, to do streaming payments for, uh, for people like gaming. I mean, let's be honest, gaming, esports, esports is going to be massive in the future. Like I, you know, I I personally think that like we do end up in a ready player one type of reality. If you ever saw that movie, like I I think that we come to some kind of a nexus between that and some other sci-fi stuff. But I but I do see that type of thing happening. And I I think that, you know, people, you know, uh, getting paid to stream their gaming and to stream like all of this is going to change. All of our lives Mm -hmm. are completely changing, and this is part of it. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like a lot
1: of the 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 innovation is happening on Bitcoin. Um, You know, people thinking that Bitcoin is old technology and stuff like that, and there's like all this all these fancy bells and whistles happening elsewhere with all this you know nonsense DeFi or whatever, whatever is happening over here, or NFTs that are happening over here, and it's like no, those aren't interesting. Those are buzzwords. The interesting stuff, the exciting stuff, is happening been being built on top of Bitcoin, things like lightning and and all the cool things you can do with it. Uh, I mean, the fact that I, I mean, I was surprised. I went to a burger place here in uh, Newport Beach, which is like an hour away uh, uh, from where I'm staying here in Southern California. So I went down to this place and all I did is order a burger paid with lightning. I took a picture of the receipt that it said Bitcoin on it. And I tweeted out this picture thinking nothing of it. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I'll get three or four likes or something like a usual tweet of mine. It blew up to become... My 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 most viral tweet I've ever done. And I've been on Bitcoin, I've been on Twitter for 10 years. So this, <laughs> this thing got over half a million impressions. I don't know, I know. For a big account like you, Phil, half a million impressions may be happening all, you know, all the time. But for me, it's actually no very, way. very rare to get that big. Not so, even th- close. And I was like, what, what is going on? Do people not know that you can pay for stuff with Lightning? Is this that interesting? Are people just not aware of how easy this is to use Lightning? Uh, now, the one the one uh, argument that can be made against this, I was using BlueWallet, which is a custodial uh, Lightning service. But I mean, this stuff, we're gonna be able to do this stuff you know, on our own. We don't have to be using custodial services. This stuff is being built out. It's still sort of experimental, but for paying a $15, you know, overpriced Southern California burger with avocado on it, it's fine. You know, I think it's, it's okay to use it. I wouldn't send, you know, a thousand dollar or $2,000 transaction on it, but for, you know, for a few bucks, absolutely. I think it's fine to use for that. And it's fun. It's fun to, to pay with, with lightning. I mean, I know back in the day, you know, in 2013, 2014, when, when I used to pay for stuff with Bitcoin, I'd be excited about it. I'm like, it's new. And now looking back, I'm like, damn, that costs so much, you know. But but it, to me, it's still it's still fun now to to use to use Lightning now to uh, to pay for things, and I think it's cool. And I, and I think that there's a lot of things that uh, people can't imagine yet. Like uh, I remember in 2013, people were saying stuff like, you're going to have cars which have their own Bitcoin wallets. And a car is going to be able to tip another car, a Satoshi for letting it for le, you know, letting it pass or something like that. Mm. You know, and this is not gonna happen like all uh you know in the background without you knowing. Like the car's internal brain is gonna be talking to some other car's internal brain and kind of tipping it like to to kind of let it pass and stuff like that. And back then we even knew this isn't gonna be done on the base layer. You're not going to be sending one Satoshi transactions to pass someone and wait for six confirmations. Like we already knew that this was coming. We already knew second layer solutions were coming. And anyone who thinks that second layer s- solutions weren't part of, there, no, that's not Bitcoin. We got to have everything done on chain. That's just stupid. I mean, people knew in 2013 when I went to uh, the Bitcoin conference, um, it was called Bitcoin, the future of money conference in San Jose, uh, back in 2013. This was May of 2013. So there's two months after my accident. My accident was in March of 2013. So I was still technically recovering from an accident when I went to this conference. And there was people who were talking about stuff like that already. Uh, so this this idea of there being additional layers on top of Bitcoin is not uh, you know, a brand new idea that Blockstream just came up with in 2017. This was something that kind of people always knew that it had to happen in order for for Bitcoin to scale. That's where the innovation is. It's on Bitcoin. It's not on uh, you know some crap coin.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Blockstream, but before we get into that, um, you know, uh, this, you know, this whole business of like the base layer, I, I, you know, for people to understand, right? It's like, you know, if you build, if you build on, on, on sand, right, it just crumbles. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the only bells and whistles that are going to be worth having are going to be the ones on Bitcoin, right? You have the proper base layer so that when you do stand those bells and whistles up and you do all the cool stuff, it works, you know, that's so right. and yeah. the other thing is, you know, this whole thing about Blockstream. I, I started to hear that when I when I like probably in like 2018, um, you know, when I started to becoming more like uh, no, even when I was still shitcoining, and and I could hear, you know, I, I would hear this narrative of like, oh, you can't, you know, Bitcoin was hijacked, so that's why you can't trust it. It was hijacked by Blockstream, <laughs> and I'm like, how how the fuck did they hijack it? Like, I don't see like first like. There's so many different developing groups in Bitcoin. How does anybody? How does anybody even make that shit up and pretend that they're being honest? I, I mean, I Phil, if, if if Blockstream
1: came out in favor of larger blocks, um, they, they, they would have. They, yeah, they would have. They would have. They would have uh, been just another laughing stock, just like BitPay or any of the other companies that, that came out in favor of, of of big blocks. So, so it's it's so, so funny that people think that Blockstream prevented. Uh, you know, uh, an upgrade to Bitcoin, which it which is like 180 degrees the opposite of the truth. I mean, look, these guys who who left Bitcoin, uh, you know, people I used to have a lot of respect for, you know, people like Roger Veer, um, who um, who I thought was 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 great because of his support of Ross Ulbricht. But I mean, I mean, the, the, these these people, they 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 had the wrong idea. They. I mean, Roger Veer actually thought that one of the reasons why Bitcoin was so successful is because of him. Don't get me wrong; Roger Ver was a very, very important uh, pro- uh, proponent of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin would have been fine even if there wasn't a Roger Ver, even if Roger Ver was not in Bitcoin, even if he had never heard of Bitcoin. Bitcoin would have been just fine without him. And I think that there was a lot of uh, ego uh, going on in this uh, in this space uh, as far as uh, you know. During the four uh, people thought that they were Bitcoin, or they thought they were the important company. Coinbase thought that they were the important company. You know, maybe Brian Armstrong thought that he was a an important part of bitcoin and whatever he said goes and it it just reality kind of smacked them in the face that's not how it is that's not you don't control bitcoin nobody does blockstream doesn't control bitcoin either if blockstream uh started doing something stupid they would be rejected from the network
0: exactly very well said That, that that's exactly right and you know what when these people when they try to make bitcoin about their narrative that's when it goes to shit That's when you get to see what they're really here for. Because, you know, with Roger, it was all about the cheap, the cheap payments, you know, the ultra cheap payments for him. This was Bitcoin, you know, and like obviously, you know, the libertarian beliefs and whatnot. But like, you know, very much, you know, like, hey, my cheap payments. And as soon as Bitcoin just was not any longer all about that narrative, well, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to show you what I can do to Bitcoin. And yeah, that, that didn't work out too well. Anyways,
1: Right. I mean, R- Roger Veer was the one who was saying that, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, the, the benefit of Bitcoin is that it's you can send the money for free. That that was Roger Veer's main argument. I mean, Luke Dasher wasn't saying that. Greg oh. Maxwell wasn't saying that. It was it was Roger who was saying that. So when, when he was saying, look, this is supposed to be for something that was, you know, cheap. Well, first of all, cheap is relative term. I mean, you, you should understand that as if you're a libertarian, you should understand that, you know, all all value is relative and there is no correct price for something. The price is whatever is willing to pay for it. You know, uh, someone who's an Austrian economist should understand that. So, so yeah, of course, if he's going to, if he's going to uh, make up the narrative, and then he's going to say, well, you guys are switching the narrative. Yes. Because he, he was the one who was saying that. Absolutely. You're right yeah. on that, Phil.
0: Oh yeah. Um, okay. We're going to switch gears from, uh, from this and we are going to talk a little bit about the, okay. Tell me, about the free State project because I don't, yeah. I don't live very far from New Hampshire and what 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 is all this I went to the website looks cool saw the pork festival mm-hmm. yeah what is all this
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing it's actually it's actually a very very uh, amazing project uh, so I, I I kind of had heard about the Free State project back in like I don't know what year maybe 2003 2004 I kind of heard about it in passing uh, but the funny thing is is that I hadn't heard about it until after I got into Bitcoin again, so because I just heard about it once, kind of in passing, in my mind I thought that it was just a, uh, an idea. I didn't know it was a real thing. I didn't know if people were actually moving to a state for this project. I thought it was just kind of a thought experiment that somebody had. And uh, and um, and of course, back then I wasn't a libertarian. I was more I was more conservative than I was a libertarian. And um, so after after I went to that um, that, to that conference in San Jose, there was uh, there was these this, these guys there from Free Talk Live. Um, and uh, it was Ian Freeman and uh, Mark Edge were interviewing this guy named Vitalik, Vitalik Buterin. And I was kind of sitting there watching this interview and, um, and I'm like, wait a minute, these guys, these guys are talking about the Free State Project. I'm like, I got to talk to them about this. So I went up to uh, Ian after, after they had finished recording and I said, uh, I said oh, uh, I mean, you guys are, you're with the Free State Project. He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I think I've heard about this. I think this is this that movement to move 20,000 Libertarians to Vermont. And he said, no, it's actually uh, New Hampshire, not Vermont. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and then uh, I was kind of intrigued by it. And I kind of made a mental note. I'm like, when I get home, let me look into this Free State Project stuff. Uh, so again, I was surprised. I was shocked that he had actually, Ian had moved from Florida to New Hampshire for the Free State Project. Uh, because again, I just thought it was kind of, kind of an idea. So I, I, after I got home from this uh, from this Bitcoin conference uh, and I did get a chance to say hello to, to Vitalik, uh, and, you know, I don't really, I, I didn't really talk to him for very long. And this is obviously before Ethereum. Back then, Vitalik was a Bitcoin guy. Uh, but I went when I came home from the from the conference. A couple of days later, I, I, I googled the Free State Project. I looked into um, New Hampshire as a place to live, and I was like, you know what, New Hampshire seems like a great place to live, regardless, even if there wasn't a Free State Project going on. So I kind of thought about it, but then I, the cold weather was kind of. I was like, I don't know about cold weather. I'm from Southern California, so the cold weather was what I was was what I was afraid of. Um, uh, but um, I was interested in moving and I didn't know where to move to. So I thought maybe I should get out of California. And uh, there was this guy, Jeff Berwick, who lives in uh, Acapulco. Uh, he's a Canadian who moved uh, to, to Mexico and he lives there now. He's like an ex Canadian expat. And he was throwing this, this, uh, this uh, conference called Anarcapulco. And I think it was in uh, February of, of 2015. So this is like maybe a year and a half after I got into Bitcoin. And I was like, maybe I should go to this, uh, an Maybe I should think about moving to Mexico because he was saying Mexico is more free, you know, they're not as anal about all the rules. And you can kind of like, if you get in trouble, all you have to do is slip the, the cop a $50 bill and then, you know, then they'll, they'll forget anything happened. So, I was thinking to myself, maybe as a Bitcoiner, I should think about moving to Mexico. So I went to this conference in Acapulco. And the funny thing is, I went as an attendee, I didn't go as a speaker. But last minute, they actually asked me to be a speaker because there was a there was a last minute uh, cancellation. So I ended up uh, speaking about uh, Silk Road because I was at the Silk Road trial one month prior when it was going on. So we could talk about that, too. But when I was there, I talked to Mark Edge again. And I said, Hey, Mark, I don't know if you remember me. He said, yeah, I do remember you. I'm like, yeah, I've been looking into this free state project. And I'm like, I'm a little worried that it's too cold to live there. And he said, well, you got to understand uh, New Hampshire is not that cold. It's actually very close to Massachusetts and it's very, it's not, not any worse than Massachusetts. And he said, and you're going to have a heater. So just like if you live in a, a warm climate, you need to have AC, you're going to have a heater everywhere you go. So you'll be fine. And then once he put it that way, and as I was in that conference in Acapulco, I was thinking, you know what, it's not right for me to move to Mexico. First of all, the, 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 uh, You know, I may have to worry about papers. I don't speak the language. Uh, The the culture is completely different. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I have to learn about. And it makes more sense for me to move to another U.S. state than it does for me to move to another country. So that's when I really decided, you know what, I should definitely move uh, to to New Hampshire because the culture is the same, the money is the same. And I don't have to, you know, I mean, the culture is not exactly the same, but it's close enough, it's similar enough that I can adjust pretty easily. So I, I moved to New Hampshire one year later, so this was in February of 2016. And there was like a whole welcome wagon ready for me. People were like welcoming me. And I think it's all about the community. It's not so much that we're concentrated into a small state, that's certainly part of it. It's not so much the politics, that's certainly part of it. But the the fact that you're in close proximity to a lot of people who are like-minded is what's really, really cool about the Free State Project. Um, You know, I have have, uh, neighbors who are free staters that I, I kind of already know that they're into freedom. They're into liberty. They're not into you know, telling me how to live my life. I'm not into telling them how to live my life, uh, how to live their life. We kind of have an understanding. We may disagree on certain issues, but we all start with the assumption that it doesn't matter if we disagree. I'm not going to force my opinion on you. You're not going to force your opinion on me. And when I moved in, I, I had a whole bunch of people show up and help me move in. And all I had to do was buy them pizza and beer. And I didn't know anybody in New Hampshire, but other than free staters, I posted on Facebook. I don't really have a Facebook page anymore, but back then I had a Facebook. I posted on Facebook, uh, right, right when I packed up my moving truck to, to, to move cross country, I said, um, I, I was with my friends in LA and we were at a restaurant. Um, and I said, last meal in Los Angeles, on the way to New Hampshire. That was the, the Facebook post. And all of a sudden, all these people that I didn't know, but I knew that they were freestaters, they all sent me friend requests. I'm like, look, I have an instant support group here. So so I'm, I'm here in, in California right now. I have a lot of family here in, in SoCal. Uh, But I also have family in New Hampshire, I have my free stater family in New Hampshire. So that's kind of like the cool thing about the free state project, especially for someone like myself who moved clear across the country. Now a lot of people do move to New Hampshire from like say Massachusetts from from Maine so for them it's not as big of 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 a shock Uh, But it's still cool to be around like-minded people. And if you, if you do want to do some, some kind of cool shit, like protests and things like that, and, and do stuff like cop blocking, which I don't really do cop blocking, but I think it's cool that other people do, um, you know, it's good to have, you know, you know, people that are there that are going to back you up. So you're not going to be out doing this by yourself and, uh, and and have nobody that kind of sees what's happening.
0: That's man, that, that is really crazy stuff. I, I was totally unaware. I mean, I spent most of my childhood, you know, uh, you know, summer vacations, my parents, right. That's, I grew up in Montreal. So always going to uh, you know, to New Hampshire for summer vacations. And then of course I now live in Massachusetts. So, you know, I spend a lot of time in New Hampshire. I never even heard of the free state project until I met you. So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it would be great if you
1: want to, cause so. I regarding Pork Fest, which is the summer festival that the Free State Project throws on, I couldn't really go to Pork Fest while I was living in California just because I mean, you can, it's just a little bit more difficult to go to an event like Pork Fest when you go and clear cross country because it's mostly a campground. It's not really like a regular, you know, conference like they're having in Miami here in a couple months. Um, so I couldn't really go to Pork Fest until after I moved to New Hampshire. But but now um, with the pork fest, they actually I went to a couple of pork Fests while I was living in New Hampshire, and and then they asked me like, hey, do you want to help help organize it? So I was organizing pork fest for a couple of years, and this year I'm still kind of an organizer for pork fest, but I'm more focused on um, putting together a Bitcoin hub, which they wanted to to call it a crypto hub, but. I kind of like calling it a Bitcoin hub and we can have some other crypto people there um, also, uh, but it's going to be Bitcoin, uh, mostly Bitcoin focused and stuff, how it relates to Bitcoin. So, um, and I think that um, it would be great, Phil, if you want to, if you want to try to make it over, we can set something up where you can, you know, you can, you can talk there, or maybe you can, um, you know, live stream there or, or, you know, have simply Bitcoin there, something like that. You know, we can, we can put something together. I've already cool. have, I've already, you know, we're already having John Vallis come, which is kind of cool. And uh, Tone Vase also uh, is coming also. And, you know, we have a, a number of other people, uh, Ben Prentice, who's the guy who did uh, yes. uh, what the F happened in 1971. He's going to be there too. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this and it's going to be a blast to, to have kind of just a place where, where toxic bitcoiners can get together at Porkfest. That's uh, gonna be of, this summer. Yeah, this summer. So, we'll so definitely, if you, uh, yeah, if if you can make it up here, let me know. Um, you know, I'll I'll try to help you get get situated uh, while you're coming here. And it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be a blast. Porkfest is always fun. Um, of course, the uh, the one the one <clears throat> downside to Porkfest is uh, at least before I started <laughs> before I started uh, 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 kind of coordinating it is that it was very much. Uh, you know, kind of more of a big blocker space, more of a Dash type of space. I mean, Dash, I think, sponsored Porkfest one year. Um, but since I've been involved in it, I've tried to kind of save the Porkfest brand, not to let it kind of drift, drift off into, into shoe coinery and kind of keep it more focused on sound money and Bitcoin and, and less so on whatever the, the current uh, buzzword or whatever the current uh, flavor of the month is when it, when it comes to, to crypto. Uh, because kind of that's, I think that's kind of what happened with an uh, I went to three in Arcapulco's altogether, and I, I think that it, it just turned into every single um, speaker was just someone who was trying to pitch their their new crypto, and of I course. think that's just so that's just completely boring. There's nothing interesting there. There's nothing innovative there. Um, and uh, and and actually, uh, to tell you the truth, something about Tone Vase. Um, uh, one of the great things that I liked about Tone Vase is um, um, he has something called Unconfiscatable in Vegas, which is yeah. probably going to move to to Florida next year. Uh, I did help Tone Vase organize uh, Unconfiscatable. And to me, Unconfiscatable was a breath of fresh air because it was one place that Bitcoiners could go to without being, you know, pitched, be, without being told how horrible Bitcoin is or being pitched some blockchain nonsense. And that was kind of, when Tone did that, that was kind of new because a lot of these conferences were just kind of turning into shitcoin conferences. Um, and I kind of, I'm looking forward to to what, uh, uh, what Bitcoin Magazine is doing in in, uh, in, in Florida in, in a couple of months now, Bitcoin 2021, because it is a Bitcoin only conference, which is uh, which is kind of cool, also, which I'm looking forward to as well. Oh, wow. But that's not what Pork is. Pork Fest is a great opportunity for Bitcoiners to interact and to hang out with shitcoiners. And there's going to be lots of shit there too. And it's great to be able to, to show to everyone, Hey, you can actually buy stuff with BTC using lightning and it's super easy and it's super cheap and you don't have to use, uh, you know, BSV or whatever nonsense these guys are using over there.
0: Nobody's using that stuff. This is the problem. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's it like, look, okay. So it it, it kind of reminds me of that typical pitch, right? Where, where, you know, somebody shows you that something works, but then there's like a whole bunch of people in the back actually making it work so it you know mm-hmm. it's like special effects and to me that that's kind of what we see when we're dealing with shitcoins. coins you know you're, you're right you're, you're sealing us you're, you're seeing a special effect right but there's a whole bunch right of and they're saying the what they're here. saying
1: they're saying that that lightning is custodial but then they don't they don't so, realize that the that the payment systems that they're using are are all converting automatically to the fiat and it's not even running on, on you know they're not even the, the 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 businesses aren't even getting the actual uh uh, Shitcoin, you're sending them they It's all converting it to fiat. Whereas when you send uh, a lot of these businesses that are accepting Lightning, they're actually keeping their Bitcoin. Just like uh, the the burger place I went to um, last week, they are keeping their Bitcoin payments, whether it's Base Layer or Lightning. They're not converting them to fiat, which is kind of cool.
0: And and you know something else uh, to your point, right? Uh, about Lightning uh, being misunderstood. You know, as you know, you can run your own Bitcoin node that has Lightning. And that way, if you're 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 accepting payments, there's you know what I mean. There there's no third party involved there. It's you, it's you and your node. Exactly. So exactly. This is nonsense. A business,
1: a business can set up a BTC pay server. And I, I'm probably I'm not an expert on this. I think you should talk to somebody called Brian Harrington, who yeah. who have who I've gotten to know pretty well here in Southern California. He's doing a lot of great work when it comes to. Um, helping small businesses set up and, and his, his, his idea. And I agree with this. And actually a lot of Bitcoiners, um, I would put myself in this category. We're kind of initially hesitant to, to what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Bitcoin needs to be used for payments. And this guy, this is a BTC maximalist saying this, mm-hmm. he's like, Bitcoin needs to be used for payments and it's important. And, What we're thinking of is, oh, back in 2014, when all these big businesses started accepting Bitcoin, like, uh, you know, Dell computer and, uh, and, you know, whatever that uh, the travel company was Expedia or whatever it was, we're we're accepting Bitcoin payments, but they weren't keeping their Bitcoin. These are big businesses. That's not the same thing as your local small business. A lot of small businesses here are struggling as a result of all the shutdowns and the pandemic stuff that's been going on. So Uh, So, so helping out these small businesses by going to them and and using Lightning to to, to buy things is not the same as buying something on Expedia back in 2014. And I think that uh, if you're a Bitcoiner, if you're a hardcore toxic Bitcoiner, and you run a business and you're willing to accept Bitcoin payments, You can't then argue that, well, then it's not good to pay in Bitcoin because you're accepting Bitcoin as as payments. So you can't really say, you know, Bitcoin is bad for payments. And when we say stuff like that, we're actually allowing these shitcoiners an in to get in there and to say, see, Bitcoin isn't good for payments. Even these these, these Bitcoiners are saying this. We we need to let people know Bitcoin is great for payments and Bitcoin is great for savings. It just works. It works for everything. It's a checking account and it's a savings account. It's both. You know, it doesn't have to be one, one or the other.
0: I completely agree. You know, I mean, I spend Bitcoin. I mean, you you see my tweets. I buy all kinds of swag and stuff like that. I love it. I, You know, I mean, I when I got uh, my Triton case from Crypto Cloaks, I paid him in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it's the same thing even when, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, I, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, who was it? I, I think it was like from Bitco that I, I bought a bunch of stickers and some a, a t-shirt, also paid in Bitcoin. Look, at the end of the day, right, to me, well, all that matters, because this is what I love about Bitcoin, Nobody else controls it, so fuck everyone and their narrative. If I choose to pay somebody in Bitcoin because I want to give them that what I believe to be the best value, that's my business, right? That's my business, that's your business, and we should be happy to do it. And, I mean, it, you know, if somebody who shits all over it, that's their fucking problem, you know?
1: Yep. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with it when I when I tweeted out the picture of of, of me buying the burger. People were like, <laughs> "How much is that going to cost you in a few years?" I'm like, "It's going to cost me a million dollars. I lost a fortune. I already know." But you know what? It's worth it to help out this business and, and to and to promote lightning adoption. I think it's all good.
0: You know, I you know people and again, I'm not trying to equate bitcoiners to you know the revolutionaries and all of that stuff. We're a different type of revolutionary. It's a digital mm-hmm. revolutionary. Okay, but like, the reality is those people had to sacrifice things. Those people had to sacrifice things so that people could have the amazing things that they were able to have after, okay? So you know yeah. what? If, if we had to spend Bitcoin in order for people to see it work, then so be it. Man, I've lost at this point millions of dollars, okay? Like, I, yeah. I, I don't even want to oh, yeah. think about it. I, I don't <laughs> even want to think about it, but you know what? Would I have, to, could I, you know, would I change it? No, I wouldn't, because that was the path that was required for me to be here now.
1: Right, there, there, right, There exactly. was no
0: choice in it. And,
1: and there have been actual sacrifices in this Bitcoin revolution too. You know, people like Ross Albrecht and uh, people who have uh, have kind of suffered. So there yeah. are actual revolutionaries. That's um, right. You know, uh, but it's a peaceful revolution, and that's kind of one of the things that I talked about when I uh, I gave a speech at um, at, the, at the Working Man Bitcoin Cruise in uh, I think it was in September of of 2019 is i talked about bitcoin as a revolution or an evolution and i compared it to the other things like you know the digital revolution the the computer revolution the industrial revolution the renaissance the thing about these revolutions the reason why they worked was because even though there was there may have been some violence here and there it was mostly a peaceful revolution the industrial revolution was mostly a peaceful revolution uh you could say maybe the civil war was kind of a you know, a, a, a violent part of the industrial revolution, but for the most part, it was a peaceful revolution. the the in The information age it's a peaceful revolution, and those are the revolutions that work. The ones that are violent, the violent revolutions, you just you just get back to just having a new a new boss and uh, same as the old boss. So, I think that's one of the great things about about this revolution is that um, is that it's actually going to work because it is a peaceful revolution. It's a technological revolution. It's a revolution that actually. Um, brings about actual change rather than just being a rehash of the older system.
0: I, I totally agree. And I love that. I, I love that saying, you know, here's the new boss, you know, same as the old boss. It's so <laughs> true. It, it really is. Um, you know what? Uh, before, before we uh, close out, I want to ask you about, you mentioned something. Um, Cause I, I really, I came kind of like, I came after Silk Road. So you were talking about the Silk right. Road trial. What, what is yes. that about?
1: Yeah. So, um, So when I got into Bitcoin, Silk Road was still operational. So I got in in like March of or May of 2013, depending on how you count it. Obviously nobody knew who, who, who was running Silk Road, at least it was public knowledge. Um, and, uh, and, and I, people were like looking at Silk Road as being evidence of, you know, we can we can cut out the government. This is the cypherpunk dream is we can actually have a marketplace that can exist outside of government control. It can be on the internet, it could be on tour, it could be using Bitcoin. We don't have to use their, 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 their monetary systems now. It turns out that didn't really work out. Uh, and I don't think it didn't work out because it, it, it's impossible. It just didn't work out because it was, I think it was too early. I think we're gonna get there, but it's gonna be a little bit of a slower process than. Yeah. than than what Silk Road was doing. Um, And it was interesting because uh, Ross Ulbricht was arrested, I believe on October 1st of 2013. And on October 1st of 2013, I had actually gone in for my sixth surgery. So I had four surgeries right after the accident. And then I had one like a month later and I had a last one in October 1st. And that, that surgery, that was a bad day for me. So I was having a bad day and obviously, uh, I woke up uh, you know coming out of the surgery hearing this bad news that uh, that you know the founder of of Silk Road had been arrested. So I thought I thought, <clears throat> I thought that was terrible news. But what's interesting is that um, is that the the mainstream media, was pushing the story that there was all these murders that happened on Silk Road and I was like wait a minute if there's murders happening on Silk Road like I that's not that's not what I'm you know that's not what I'm about I'm all about you know non-aggression principle and, and being peaceful and stuff like that so it so it kind of uh, put a chilling effect on all the people who were who were kind of bitcoiners who were like and libertarians who were ready to jump jump to the defense of, of whoever this person was that was arrested we kind of had this chilling effect and people didn't want to speak out you know publicly in favor of of, of ross albury because they were they were basically lied to and said that there was a whole bunch of murders that happened on Silk Road. none of it was true mm-hmm. those charges you know disappeared uh after they had kind of done their job and uh uh and, and kind of uh, uh prevented him from getting um uh, uh, uh from getting bail and um I, when, once I, once I, uh, there was a guy, Michael Goldstein, Bitstein on Twitter who yeah. gave a speech in, I think it was in the Texas Bitcoin conference in the spring of 2014, when he spoke positively about Ross Albrecht. Uh, I think that was kind of like the first time that I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I should look more into the story. And I kind of, when I, the more I looked into it, I'm like, I'm like, look, this is, uh, uh this is, this is kind of the government, uh, uh, bullying, uh, this person. And, and I started tweeting, uh, my support for, uh, for ross albrecht and i started tweeting against kind of the, the these uh the charges basically he was being charged with running a website which didn't make any sense to me i mean what <laughs> you know and and i because i was doing all this stuff you know kind of speaking positively of, of ross albrecht um i kind of got the attention of the free ross account on twitter the free ross account started following me on twitter and um it was, it's run by his mom, Lynn Ulbricht. And, um, uh, so, so they kind of reached out to me, uh, Lynn and Kirk, uh, Ross's parents kind of reached out to me, uh, first through DMs. And then, you know, we went back and forth through emails and then eventually by, by phone, uh, by phone numbers, um, where they said, um, you know, Hey, we're, we're about to go to trial here in, um, January of 2015 is when the trial was set to begin in New York city. And again, I was still living in California at the time. And, uh and they said, hey, if you know anybody in, in the you know New York area, they can kind of come support. Um, and I was like, you know, I didn't really know anybody in New York City, but I was like, maybe I can go. And so I kind of talked to some, some people in New Hampshire who were part of the Free State Project, which I wasn't a part of yet. And I talked to some other uh, people through Free Talk Live and Libertarians, somebody named Bitcoin Bell. I don't know if you, most people don't even remember who Bitcoin Bell is these days. Oh, but I, I know who she is. I, yeah, yeah. I talked to her, Bitcoin Bell, and, and we kind of <clears throat> figured out, you know what? We should get together. And there's a guy named Jim Babb who's very much into um – a jury nullification he was kind of involved to. So I, I flew out to New York City for the trial. I was there for the first week of the trial. The trial lasted for four for four weeks, I believe. So I wasn't able to kind of go for the whole four weeks, but I was there for, for like the first week. And I got together with a lot of people, like people like Larkin Rose um, and and people like that were there all the time. So it was really my first, first time that, that I kind of got together with a whole bunch of other libertarians, you know, before moving to uh, before moving to, uh, to New Hampshire. And I just got to meet a whole bunch of people there. Um, and so I was there for the first week and I was inside the courtroom while, while the trial was happening and the trial was actually going really, really well the first week or so. Um,
0: the first week it was, and then it was in the second week where basically the, the, the prosecution
1: and the judge kind of got together and conferred and tried to figure out a way to, to thwart the defensive strategy. Cause the defensive strategy was basically to talk about, well, we'll, we'll you know, you guys didn't even think Ross Ulbricht was a suspect until like a week before or two weeks before you arrested him. You know, where did you get this information from? Where did you get this? Uh, you know, who tipped you off? And I think one of the secrets of the Silk Road investigation that was never really um, kind of aired out in court is that, uh, is that the uh, um, the investigators were tipped off. Uh, that Ross Ulbricht could be the guy running it uh, through a contact uh, with another Bitcoin company. And, and that was what the defense wanted to explore. Where did you guys get this tip from? Mm -hmm. And they didn't want they didn't want that stuff to be, uh, you know, uh, to be told in front of the jury, because then the jury would have reasonable doubt. So what the Silk Road trial taught me is that there's no such thing as a fair trial and the judge is not an impartial therefore. The judge will actively work with the prosecution mm-hmm. uh, to try to make sure that they uh, that they make their case. And if the prosecution makes a mistake, the judge will actually jump in and actually help them out and, and try to fix the mistake. Whereas it's not so much the case with the defense. If the defense, if the defense makes an error, the, the judge is like, well, that's not my fault. That's, that's up to the defense to try to figure that stuff out. But if the, um, but yeah, but it, it was basically, it showed me how unfair the system is. And uh, basically uh, you don't really have a right to a free trial in America. You're, uh, this is one of the reasons why Ed Snowden hasn't come back. Ed Snowden says, hey, I'm willing to stand trial uh, for, for for what you guys think I've, I've done. But he wants to make sure he's able to mount a defense. And what happened with the Chelsea Manning case is I believe he was uh, tried under, was he tried in a court martial? I don't remember. I believe it was a court martial. And <clears throat> under the Chelsea Manning case, he um, She was not able to mount a defense. She was not able to say anything to to say that, you know, this was for the public good or this all this is exposed war crimes and this didn't threaten national security. None of that stuff is allowed to be brought up in the defense of Chelsea Manning. And the reason why they wasn't, was because they're saying, well, that's not, that's irrelevant to whether you actually did it or not, whether it was for the public good or not, there's no thing in the law that says, as long as it's for the public good, it's okay. And that's what kind of what, uh, what Ed Snowden is facing. He understands how unfair the trial will be. If he can get a fair trial where he can actually mountain defense, he says he's willing to come back and, and, and make his case, but that's not what Ross Albright got. That's not what Chelsea Manning got. Nope. And that's probably not what, uh, what Ed Snowden will get.
0: Man. I, I totally agree that that was, that was some crazy stuff. <clears throat> um, I actually tried to get Bitcoin Bell on a podcast um, about a year ago. Uh, I think it was about a year ago. Um, yeah, she's definitely uh, she's definitely an interesting person, and. Um very uh yeah i may i may try to i may try
1: to talk to her see her here in a few days and uh cool i'll I'll put in a good word for you
0: (laughs) i I appreciate it man i was talking to her for a bit and even in dms and like she just would not budge and it was funny because uh, um just quickly it was it was funny because i had no idea who she was i just found her to be like this very staunch supporter of bitcoin and I was like, holy crap. I'm like, who's this person I never heard of? And people were kind of like making fun of me. They're like, you sure you've never heard of it? And she was like, you must be. She said to me, like, she's like, you must be fucking trolling me. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm genuinely not trolling you. And, and then that's when she was like, she sent me like YouTube videos. And she's like, this is who I am. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I did not realize that you brought Craig Wright to the stage. i yeah i I knew nothing i like knew nothing at all so i was in total shock and 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 nick sabo not just craig Wright nick sabo as well but but i i I, all i wanted to know was like her rabbit hole story like this like us like what we're talking about right Mm. now i didn't want to know any of that shit anyways whatever so but but man this was this was a freaking great chat this was really cool so look before we before we end off uh what are your final thoughts for the listeners
1: um, my final thoughts for the listeners is uh, I had a, I had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who I've been telling him about Bitcoin. He kind of gets it, but he doesn't get it. Like he's still into shit coins. And he asked me if he's very much into like life coaching and stuff like that. So he said, he's like, if I asked you a life coaching uh, you know, advice, what would you say? And I told him, don't listen to people. And I'm like, I know you're going to hate that advice. But I'm like, don't listen to people. Don't listen to anybody. Don't listen to me. Uh, don't, don't listen to, to anybody else. Just kind of, if you can figure something out for yourself, figure it out for yourself. Like I, I didn't come to Bitcoin because I, I listened to uh, some, uh, you know, some brilliant person. I listened to people like Amir Taki and Jeffrey Tucker who are great people, don't get me wrong. They're brilliant people, but it wasn't because you know, I knew who they were. I had no idea who Amir Taki and Jeffrey Tucker were before I got into Bitcoin, but what they said made sense. It wasn't who they were. It was their arguments that made sense. And that's kind of what I say: is is don't listen to uh, the person, listen to the reasoning, listen to the logic. If the logic makes sense to you, do it. But don't listen to someone just because they're uh, a big name, uh, even in the Bitcoin space.
0: Proof is our success, man. Thank you so much yep. for joining. This was a really great chat, Patrick. Thank you so much, Phil. Appreciate I appreciate it. I look forward to the next one, man. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed my chat with. Patrick the motorist. His contact details will be in the show notes. And of course, if you want to reach me, Twitter or Telegram, I am at Coinicarus. If you want to shoot me an email, I am Coinicarus at funwithbitcoin.com. Thank you all for listening. Catch you all next time.